Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, team. This is um, a significant day in the sense that it's the first time Rachel's led in the morning service. And what a fantastic job. I had the pleasure last week of working in Albury with Rachel and Josh and and we're just so grateful to the team and I'm not just picking on you guys but Phil and Bob and others who serve us very faithfully and and lead us week by week. What a blessing it is to have people like that exercising their gifts amongst us. It's fantastic. About 20 years, this is kind of, I'm starting to feel old when I say that. About 20 years ago, Diana and I had the opportunity to go and do uh, some ministry in Tasmania. And while we were over there, once we finished uh, what we were doing, the host that we were staying with took us on a little tour into the hinterland. And we ended up at a place called Levin Canyon. Has anyone been to Levin Canyon? Maria, it looks like you're the only hand I can see. Levin Canyon, yes, there is a couple others. Levin Canyons, it's one of those beautiful kind of surprises. You park in the car park, you don't think it's a very impressive place. And then walk out onto um, the lookout. I think it's, it's called Cruikshank's Lookout. I had to look that up this week. And it's a drop of... 275 metres to the floor of the canyon, 916 feet or something like that. And as you can see, the, the view is spectacular. It's one of those places that you go to that you just go, whoa. Now, in the finest tradition, of course, um, Josh, who was only a little tacker at the time, my son Josh, and I had a quick look, and then we went rushing back into the bush looking for some rocks because... <laughs> Of course, Diana says to me, what if there's some bushwalkers down there? <laughs> well, there's no bushwalkers down there, are there? At least not after we chucked a few rocks over there. <laughs> it's not often that you can actually piff a stone 300 metres. 30 metres out, 275 metres down. So far down that we could hardly even see them hit the water at the bottom. It's just one of those places that you go, Wow. You might have been to some places like that. There's a few others that um, we've been privileged to visit, one or two, not all of these I'm going to show you. We uh, were on a trip with BMA, Baptist Mission Australia, a few years ago. went to Angkor Wat for a day. You need a day in Angkor Wat. And it's another one of those places you just look at and you go, wow, how did people build this? The scale, you can't see the people on this picture. It, the scale is just unbelievable. You feel very small. It's one of those places you go to and you say, this is just, the words fade you. Other places you might go to, I've not been here. Grand Canyon, I'm guessing a few more of you have been to the Grand Canyon, uh, at least handful. Another one of those places I imagine you would go to and you would just be struck by the immensity and the awesomeness of the place. Or if you were to go and stand at the foot of the Great Pyramid at Giza, uh, at the sheer dimensions, the size, the antiquity of it would take your breath away. Some of you have possibly stood at the base of Ayers Rock, it would be impressive in the middle of a thunderstorm, wouldn't it? Uh, many years ago, in fact it was 1988, it was my contribution to the bicentennial year. Diana and I and a couple of us travelled to the centre and we went to Ayers Rock. It was impressive to put your hand against the rock and just say, what an enormous piece of hardware this is. It's, well, it is, it's hardware, it's, it's solid, it's rock. Um, 
It's, it's one of those things that, again, uh, just takes... These are natural things. Uh, what about something like this? I had a group of school students back in... Well, it was back in the 80s again. I uh, took them to Melbourne for the Melbourne experience. Some of you have probably sent your children to the Melbourne experience. I had a group of about three or four with me for the day. And uh, we went to all sorts of interesting places. Not the usual places. I took them to the underground control centre for the railway system. Not many people can get in there, but we had a contact. So we went in there and watched how they control the trains. And I took this group of boys into St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. One of the boys, whose name was Lyle, was your typical recidivist. He was always in trouble. I won't use his surname, because <laughs> this is being recorded. Uh, but Lyle was one of those kids that used to always give me trouble. In fact, I had a contract with Lyle, and I said to Lyle, when we go to Melbourne, if you muck up once, you're going home. 200 kilometres. I had actually arranged for someone to be on call to take Lyle home. That's how serious it was. Lyle walks into St Paul's Cathedral with me. And normally Lyle's bouncing around, you know, like a, a jack-in-the-box and, and saying the most inappropriate stuff. He walked into this place. And it, it's true, probably, for all of us, you go into a place like this. And the silence and the awesomeness overwhelmed Lyle. And Lyle, who kind of, you know, used to come up to about here on me, he sidled up to me and he says, Mr H... Is this where God lives? <laughs> it's just that sense of sacred presence, I suppose. The same kind of feeling that you might get when you visit the Grand Canyon or the Pyramid at Giza or somewhere like that. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it like this, but in its heyday, the Jerusalem Temple would have inspired the same kind of awe and respect. It was one of those places in the world that people saw, and you could see it in the days when it was in its, in its completeness, Herod's Temple particularly. You would come up over hills. You would see it from kilometres away, literally kilometres. It was an imposing structure, and the Jewish people were immensely proud of it. And you could walk up against the walls. This area that you can see here, let me show you what it looks like today. Uh, this area, the Temple Mount, not such a good photo taken early in the morning on an overcast day, but the Temple Mount that you can kind of see in the foreground here, it's something like 16 acres. If you can imagine the Temple built in the middle of that as well, is it any wonder the Jewish people were so proud of it? You get a lot of people up there. It's an enormous structure. In fact, um, just recently, there was not that many years ago an, an Islamic um, gathering there because, of course, it's one of the very important holy places for the Islamic religion. Uh, they alleged that they had something in the order of 440,000 people gathered there. Can you imagine four at a bit MCGs full of people all on the, that space at once. There's some question about whether that's possible, but I guess if they're all very friendly, they could probably manage it. But that just gives you a sense of the immensity and the size. And uh, in Jesus' day, even up to the time that the book of Hebrews was written, this temple stood proudly in Jerusalem 
the essence of everything Jewish, the focus of the Jewish religion, an impressive structure which served an impressive religion, a religion that drew people to it because of its worship of one God, a religion that the adherents were immensely proud of. And the Jewish people, as we know, had a deep sense of their history and they knew where they'd come from, they knew the stories, they knew the practices. They went back centuries, millennia. The religious activities that they participated in everyday life were ancient and the temple and everything that it represented to the Jewish people was deeply meaningful. Uh, And at the time that the book of Hebrews was written, this book that we've been working our way through, it was still there. And so you can imagine how confronting it would have been uh, to hear that all of this was going to be obsolete. How could that possibly be the case? I'll give you that little bit of background this morning for a couple of reasons. First of all, because um, it perhaps throws a little bit of light on just how confronting this message from the author of Hebrews was to the original recipients. When Jesus was walking with his disciples one day, we have a record of this in Mark chapter 13, uh, there was a conversation going on where the disciples said to Jesus, teacher, look at these magnificent stones and these magnificent buildings. Let's just back up and, and have look at this magnificent structure. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now I can well imagine the disciples on the edge kind of going, seriously? Could that be possible? How could that ever happen? I mean, look at this place. And yet that's what Jesus said. Let me just get back to the slide we're up to there. And indeed that did happen. The fact is that at the time that this book of Hebrews was written, not a single Jew could possibly conceive of the temple not being there. And so the argument that Jesus, uh, sorry, that the author of um, the book of Hebrews puts forward about Jesus being a great high priest and this sanctuary, this temple on earth only being a shadow or a reflection of something else is actually quite hard to swallow, isn't it? Really, when you look at the magnificent, there's something better than this? Are you kidding me? Really? What could possibly be greater than this glorious structure? And one of the things that we do, of course, is read this passage with our Jesus lens on and, uh, and we don't appreciate how hard it would have been for a Jew who's, who's drawn back to this, the ritual and the magnificence and the worship that they're very familiar with, how confronting it would have been to hear some of the things that uh, have been written in this book. What could possibly replace this system that's been in place for centuries? What could be better than what we've already got? It'd be a bit like, uh, no, this illustration's not going to work, but let's go with it anyway. It'd be a bit like this. Let's just say I stood up here and said, guess what, everybody? We've just made the big decision. We're going to tear this building down and build something else. What could be better than what we've already got? Okay, so, (laughs) like I said, that isn't going to fly. Having said that, we should be very thankful for what we've got because it is the envy of many, many other churches. Let me tell you, the resources that God has blessed us with, fantastic. 
but the Jews would have been thinking this, this temptation to stay with the familiar, with what they are uh, are connected with would have been strong. And the author of the Hebrews puts a lot of effort into emphasising that Jesus is a new high priest. He's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We talked about that, Roderick talked about that last week. Melchizedek who kind of comes in and out of history without family, without genealogy, without being part of the Levitical priesthood. Uh, He is a model for who Jesus is. Jesus is this great high priest and this tabernacle, this building, this edifice, this structure is just a reflection of what uh, is in heaven. That's uh, the emphasis that we keep hearing through these passages. The second reason it's probably worth um, highlighting some of this stuff is and I say this, um, I say this to myself first. I think it's possibly because we need an attitude adjustment when it comes to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant. There's a bit of a risk, I reckon, that uh, that we as Christians can be a little bit cavalier when it comes to thinking about the Old Covenant and all of the trappings that surround it. I mean, you know, the animal sacrifices, it's just kind of gross, isn't it? How many thousands of animals were sacrificed? And what about these people who laboured lifetimes under the law, you know, trying to keep the law and doing the right things? Man, alive, those, sorry for those people. We judge those who strained under the weight of the law, seeking righteousness uh, before God. Um, In a nutshell, I think we can be very negative about how the people had to relate to God before Jesus. And if we were in the context of ministering amongst Jewish people, and I've had conversations with some of the Messianic Jews who do this very thing, and they make this point, Christians can sometimes be very offensive to Jews because they just kind of tip the hat uh, tip overboard in a sense you know the old government treated as though it was not significant when actual facts you think about it it was a gracious gift from God to meet the people's needs at the time before Christ it provided a way for relationship with God it provided a way that sin might be dealt with when there was no other way It was actually God's goodness, God's graciousness to his people, that gift that he gave them through uh, this old system. So all that to say, uh, the system of religion that the recipients of this book had come out of was not irrelevant. It had been given by God, and God doesn't give rubbish. Nor was the Old Covenant just a set of complicated rules that had to be followed to make God happy as though he was playing games with his people. That's not the case. It was a demonstration of God's goodness to his people. Now, having said that, good that the Old Covenant might have been and effective in its time, uh, there was something else coming. The author has gone to great lengths in these chapters to point out that in God's economy, it was only a stopgap. It was something that was necessary for the time, but it was going to be replaced. A little bit like this, and again, this illustration may or may not work. A young person of um, 17, 16, 17, 15, 14 years and nine months, <laughs> when you're allowed to start work, they start saving. Well, that's the plan anyway. Uh, they start saving for their first car. And by the time they turn 16, 17, they're getting enough, uh, enough coin together to be able to afford a car. Which car are you going to buy when you're 18? You're going to buy the car you can afford, right? 
you might have $2,000 to spend, which means that you're not going to be going down to Blacklocks and pulling off a brand new car off the lot, or wherever. I'm not here to advertise Blacklocks, by the way. Um, you're not going to buy the car that you'd really like. You're going to get one that's going to get you by, right? And you'll get by for a few years. But in time, once you get a job, uh, you might say, I'm going to save up for the car I really want. In some ways, it worked a little bit like that. The old covenant was that first car. Again, just go with the illustrations. Not perfect. Um, but it worked. This is the point. God used it. But there was always a plan to bring something else, something better, something superior, something more effective, something permanent. And in verses 8 through to 12, because I'm going to jump into those verses today, uh, the author here in Hebrews quotes extensively from the book of Jeremiah and describes the car the people had always wanted. He says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, just be mindful that the author here is actually quoting from the ancient prophet Jeremiah. This is not a new thing. This is something that has been said years and years and years and years and years ago. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And it won't be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Let's have a look at some of the elements of this new covenant because if you've got a Bible that you, that you highlight, you might want to highlight these four things because these four things capture, I think, the essence of what it is to be a Christian. Four things uh, that are highlighted. Here's the first one. God says to the people... Here's the first one. Um, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Let's just reframe that language. It's a quote from Jeremiah 31, 33, requoted in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Actually, it's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. Interesting. When we submit our lives fully to Jesus, God will put his law into our minds and write it on our hearts. Why is this significant? Why is it significant that God writes his law onto our hearts? It's the difference between external motivation and internal motivation, isn't it? And so the law on our hearts solves the human problem of what motivates us. You remember, those of you who have raised children, the challenge that you face of getting children to internalise behaviour. Let's uh, use another illustration. This one's also a dangerous one, but I think I'll get away with it. Um, when you're training your children to clean up their toys before the end of the day, how do you do it? I'm suspecting if I did a survey, we would get all sorts of ideas, you know. You can ask them nicely. That's the first thing. Would you please pack up your toys? Uh, we're finishing playtime in five minutes. It's time to start packing up. Would you pack up your toys? Get on and pack up your toys. Okay, you do that kind of strategy. That can work with some children, the compliant ones. Then there are the other ones. And you've got to find other strategies. If you don't pack up those toys in five minutes, I'm going to take them. We had a strategy. It was a good one. Um, and it worked. Case study, uh, Laura's here this morning. Perfect child. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure whether Laura was going to be here morning or night. <laughs> anyway. Um, we had the Saturday box. Is anyone familiar with the Saturday box? 
the Saturday box. Well, if, you, if you've got um, grandchildren or children of your own, you might want to try the Saturday box. You just need a box. Any old box will do. Should have a lid on it, probably. Please pack up your toys. You've got five minutes to do it. If it's not done in five minutes, the toys go in the Saturday box. You don't get to play with those toys again until you get them back on Saturday. Not such a bad thing if you have them confiscated on Friday afternoon. <laughs> but if you're stuffing around on Sunday morning and you lose your favourite toy, it's a whole week before you get it back. Strong motivation. But the point is, external motivation only works up to a point, doesn't it? And God has always been interested in a transformation of the heart so that we are motivated internally. Ideally, as you raise your children, you want them to take on board that external motivation internally so that they do it themselves. So that you don't turn up at their house when they're 26-year-old and, and you're still crashing around on toys on the floor. That's not appropriate. You want to internalise that motivation. And that's what this passage is talking about. God says, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. External motivation towards righteousness. In other words, uh, the rituals and practices of the law in the Old Covenant, which directed people towards God, was good, but it wasn't enough. Because God always wanted to see a transformed or a changed heart. In Deuteronomy, actually going way back, way back in history, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, Moses gave the people this, uh, these instructions. These are known as the Shema. You'll be familiar with this. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's that word, heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now that, that gave rise to practices uh, in the Jewish religious tradition of memorising, reciting, uh, speaking the scripture. But even hearing and memorising and reciting is not enough. If we go into Exodus, for instance, uh, the people heard the law in Exodus and they said, yes, all that Yahweh, the Lord, has said we will do and we will be obedient. But you know how the story went, don't you? Didn't take um, much time before the moral power that they had was not enough. And so over time, we see through the Old Testament, there's this pattern of falling into sin and repenting and restoration and falling and repenting and restoration. And the problem was not with the covenant. It's not the problem that, um, that the law was no good. Uh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, the problem is that it was weakened by the flesh. And what we're going to need if we're going to overcome the problem of human motivation in obedience towards God is not more rules. It's actually a transformed heart. You can be a good person. You can be a great person. But as long as you don't allow your heart to be transformed, you'll always be a person subject to the vagaries of the flesh. So that's the first aspect of this new covenant uh, a transformed heart. The second one, uh, whoops, I've gone too far. Or have I left one out altogether? Sorry, I think I've missed one here. Uh, let's just forget about that one for a second. Leave that there, ignore that. Um, come to the scripture. 
Um, the second thing under this new covenant, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I'm sorry we haven't got that on the screen. Let's not dwell too long on this except to say one of the aching questions of the human heart asked by people of all generations at all times is this question. Who am I? Where do I fit? Am I significant? How am I defined? One of the beautiful things uh, that we've enjoyed about uh, watching grandchildren grow up is from the veriest, very earliest of age, you can see them just taking in the world. I don't, I don't know what children, what do babies think? I was just chatting to um, Natasha, our daughter, about this the other day, you know. Um, what does an eight-week-old think? Because they've got no language. And thinking requires language, doesn't it? What does a baby think? But they're looking and they're figuring stuff out and it's not long as they grow up, they start to recognise faces and they figure out who is important in their world, who they're connected to, who defines them. We all look for that, don't we? And we do it in all sorts of places. Just this week I was reflecting with Diana how um, back uh, in uh, a few years ago I used to ride with a group of people every Saturday morning, every Tuesday morning. It was a really weird kind of bunch. We had very little in common except the fact we liked to ride together. And so at six o'clock on Saturday morning we'd get together and, uh, and we'd be all decked out in our stuff and off we'd go and ride 50 or 60 or 70 k's or something like that and we'd chat along the way and we had uh, someone in the group who was an engineer, we had a retired police officer, we had a social worker, we had a medical secretary, we had a cardiac nurse, we had a doctor, an undertaker and a minister. So if anything happened we had all the bases covered. <laughs> we didn't have any worries if something serious took place. No stress, right from this end to that end. We had it all good. And we, we identified with one another. It was part of who I was. I was part of that group. And we long for that as humans, don't we? And of course, we live in an age where identity has become one of the great hungers that people have. And, and they look to all sorts of places to find it. And sometimes in quite healthy ways. Let's, uh, let's not deride some of those those things as was the case with the cycling group but they're always limited and in this place it's good for us to hear the words here that uh, that are quoted to us I will be their God and they will be my people because those words address the issue of identity who we are because God says to us you are mine and that's significant you belong to me you are you are identified in light of my relationship with you our identity is framed by how we stand in relationship with God and it's a great affirmation isn't it a great affirmation of our humanity that God who is the only God the ultimate God the only one in the world the creator of the universe the one who flung stars into space reaches out and says Josh put your name in you belong to me. How good is that? We're actually defined in relation to the creator of the universe. And so the issue of identity is absolutely resolved for us. The third observation under this new covenant, the one that's on the screen, uh, these words, no longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is a significant statement too by Jeremiah quoted in Hebrews too because in the old covenant this, uh, this idea that you could know God personally was not really there. 
There was a sense in which Israel could know God. There was a sense in which the nations around Israel could know God as they observed his interactions, but not in a personal way. And even what was known of God was all too quickly forgotten. You might remember as we went through the book of Judges, uh, when Joshua took that generation into the land, um, Joshua then passed away and we're told in Judges chapter 2 verse 10, there was a whole generation of people who arose who neither knew the Lord or what he had done for the people. So they'd forgotten. But under the new covenant, under this new covenant that Jesus is the great high priest of, God has revealed himself in a very personal way, invites us into a personal relationship, something unknown to those who lived under the old covenant. And as we can see from the text in Jeremiah, um, there's no preferential treatment for they might know him from the least to the greatest. It's God's, the knowledge of God's available for anyone. Not the spiritual elite, not the people who minister at the temple, not the educated, not the wealthy, for everybody. And then fourth, thankfully that one's on the screen. Uh, God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now this might seem like a new idea uh, to us as we read the New Testament, but actually it's a concept that has its roots way, way back in the Old Testament. Let me take you to Exodus chapter 34 where we read these words. And the Lord came down from the cloud and stood there in, uh, with him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. In other words, God came down, proclaimed his name, the Lord. Intrinsic to his name is his character. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand, uh, maintaining love, sorry, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Intrinsic, built into the very core of God's name is compassion and grace being slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining faithfulness and forgiveness of rebellion and sin. Where does this passage come from? Exodus, way back in the Old Testament. This character of God is consistent right through uh, the scriptures. There was a, a um, couple I worked for a few years ago, for the most part, really enjoyed working with them, although the wife was just a little difficult at times. And the best way to sum this up would be to say, um, you just never quite knew where you stood with her. I get on pretty well with most people. And so in some ways um, did okay in that space. But some of our other workers, they just, you know, is she going to be okay today? Or is she going to be grumpy with me? Is she going to speak nicely? Is she going to give me the cold shoulder? It's not that she had bipolar or something uh, or some other thing going on there. It was just, it was just difficult. You never quite knew where you were going to be. And as we think about our relationship with God, that is never a place we find ourselves. We never have to wonder, how's God going to respond to me today? We never have to ask, where do I stand with God today? 
And we don't because if we look to Jesus, the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God and who ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, the one who is applying to us the effect of his sacrifice when he died on the cross, what he did there in taking sin, he applies that, the, the legal rights, the, the legal freedom then that we have, uh, then we should have no problem in our relationship with God because it's written down in words that can't be mistaken. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We know where we stand in God. We do not stand condemned. We stand in the freedom that Christ has given to us. Uh, if we want to pick some more stuff up out of the Old Testament again, uh, the psalm, words from Psalm 103, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, God's always been at work doing this stuff. And under the new covenant, it's been made explicit through Jesus Christ. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So what does all this mean for us where we are right now? Let's just think for a few moments about the nature of worship in this new covenant. Have you ever noticed um, when you're reading through the New Testament that the New Testament never talks about church buildings? New Testament mentions that people met in so-and-so's house but that's as far as it goes there's no mention so far as I can find in the New Testament about how we should dress when we gather with other Christians there are there are passages that speak about how we dress but uh, not in terms of when we gather to worship God no mention of the time we should gather what is the right time to worship 10 o'clock 10 30 11 o'clock the sacred hour which day's the right day? No mention in the New Testament about how long a sermon should go, which is probably just as well. No mention of choirs or instruments or bands or worship leaders or lighting or singing. In fact, when the church gathered in the New Testament, it was not even called worship. Ooh, there's a thought. That might sound scandal, like a scandal, but hear me out. Because the take-home message from this passage, and particularly from the quote here from Jeremiah, is that the worship life of the Old Testament, which was centred around that enormous, beautiful, magnificent building, with all of its rituals and traditions, has been refocused onto Jesus and has become a radically spiritual thing which rises from the heart comes from within us and so that means while the external is still important and the stuff that we do is still important uh, what actually is important is what rises from our hearts and so everything we do in life can be an act of worship Paul picked this up in uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 1 where he said therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship and so we can worship God everywhere. I think I've told you the story of a friend of mine who said, a little bit disappointed one time when I took the whole church out one Sunday morning and we did the Clean Up Australia Day. We talked about this before. Well, that's what we did. We, we, we didn't do a service at 10 o'clock on Sunday and we went out as a whole church 
and we picked up rubbish together and we filled up two trailers full of rubbish and we worked with our community and one dear brother said to me that was wrong because Sunday's the Lord's day and I said that's true so is Monday so it's Tuesday when I last checked so was Wednesday Thursday Friday and Saturday every day is the Lord's day and so everything that we can do is an act of worship everything that we have uh, crossing our paths can be an act of worship we worship God by treating someone in need with kindness we worship God by being polite to the person who serves us in the shop and Lord knows they need that nowadays I see a couple of people who work in um, customer service nodding so yes please we worship God by picking up the rubbish that blows under our feet as we walk along the path, by holding on to our criticism, by being courteous as we drive along the highway. And that might have convicted one or two people too. <laughs> now I use what seem like, you know, pretty low level kind of examples, but isn't that the truth? That everything is an act of worship. Paul said it, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our worship is not constrained by some kind of cultural straitjacket as it was in ancient times. It was focused on the temple. That's the place you had to go. Uh, it's, it has been liberated into every aspect of our lives and, and by implication, if we wanted to preach another sermon on this, it, it, it's liberated to go into other cultures as well. It's not stuck in, in this, the Jewish framework that it was. It's, it's able to be manifest anywhere. There's a missionary sermon here somewhere. We might hold that off until next July. Um, worship can take us any place because we can worship God in any place in anything that we do next week um, Matt's going to bless us as we go on in chapter 9 and speak some more about these things but let's pray Father, we, we do worship you. We worship you here this morning as your gathered people and it's a joy for us to be able to worship as we are able with, uh, with others and enjoy the corporate nature, uh, nature of that, enjoy doing it with musicians and with words, but we're mindful that this passage has challenged us to be people who express our worship in everything that we do in life and truly capture the truth of what Paul said and whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it unto the glory of God. And so we take that today as perhaps the take-home message from this passage that you call us to a life of service and witness wherever we are. And so, God, we pray that you will go with us, that you will grant to us courage and boldness, and that we might experience the blessing of God as we serve you through this week. Grant to us a sense of your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.